Tracy to kids. Tracy to kids. Come in, kids. Come in, kids. It's here at last. Now, it's time for the thrilling adventures of Dick Tracy. Calling all adventure fans. Calling all Dick Tracy fans. Stand by. Dick Tracy is on the air. There is one comic strip that has the greatest readership in the country. There is one comic strip with which every child is familiar. There is one comic strip with a readership of over 60% adults. And that is Dick Tracy. Before we start, let's introduce Dick Tracy himself. And his wife, now Tess Tracy, formerly Tess Trueheart. Then there's Tracy's sidekick, Sam Ketchum. And here, of course, is our old friend, Diet Smith. Oh, yes, the Dick Tracy series has all the gimmicks the children love. As usual, there is a story with a moral. Crime does not pay. Dick Tracy is programmed 52 weeks a year. Dick Tracy will help sell merchandise. Dick Tracy. He's a good cop. Newspaper advertising, package wrappers, and billboards. Dick Tracy is completely merchandised. There will be monthly newspapers for the Dick Tracy fan clubs containing adventure stories, secret codes, puzzles, and every gimmick children love. It will build a loyal, regular audience for its sponsor. You won a thousand dollars? How? I helped Dick Tracy catch a thief. Hey, one clue led to another. So what are you, secret agent now or what? Hi, I'm Chuck Coletta. I'm talking to you from Cleveland, Ohio. I teach in the Department of Popular Culture at Bowling Green State University. I teach film, television, and comic book studies. Dick Tracy got started in 1931, so it's almost 90 years old next year. I would basically define it as sort of an American Sherlock Holmes. Dick Tracy was created right in the midst of the Depression when characters like Ma Barker and Pretty Boy Floyd and John Dillinger and Al Capone were running around. Chester Gould was from Oklahoma, but he lived in Chicago in the 20s when Capone was running things. Dick Tracy was sort of the gung-ho investigating detective who brought law and order to the big city. It's interesting that in like 90 years, they've never gone back as far as I can ever remember in any sort of history of Dick Tracy. You never find it really out about his family, his parents, his siblings. He's just almost fully formed right from the beginning. As the strip went on, it became famous for the grotesque villains, prune face and flat top and the brow. Their features were physical manifestations of their evil. In the early 1930s, when Gould was starting the strip, it was much more, I don't want to say real realistic, but the drawings of the villains were much more realistic, more like mobsters, and it became more stylized and symbolic as time went on. I'm almost certain, it's got to be, that Chester Gould was a big influence on Bob Kane and Bill Finger. The rogues gallery, the relationship between Dick Tracy and Junior is the relationship.
relationship between Batman and Robin 10 years before the comic book started with a dynamic duo. It feels like that was acknowledged more when I was younger and reading about the relationship of comics and comic strips in the last maybe 20, 30 years from the time frame since the Dick Tracy movie from 1990. It seems like that's been downplayed. I think that there's an incredible amount of influence on Tracy, on comics in general, and, and certainly on the superhero genre. It seems like it isn't acknowledged as much as it used to be. The main problem is that Dick Tracy has been, for the last 30 years, in the newspaper comic strips only. Only in the last year or two have we had some recent comic book miniseries. But this seems like a natural. If I was DC or Marvel, I'd get the rights and have a crime comic with Dick Tracy in it. The characters still have some cultural relevance, but I'm guessing that most people who are, let's say, under 40, or maybe even older than that, don't have any real knowledge of who Dick Tracy is. Maybe they've heard of the movie. I don't think most people and the younger demographics are readers of Dick Tracy. To my knowledge, you're not 100 years old, so I'm pretty sure you weren't reading Dick Tracy from the very beginning. What brought you in as a fan of the Dick Tracy comic strip? I started reading Dick Tracy and the Sunday paper in the early 1980s. Even though we grew up in Cleveland, and we used to get occasionally the New York papers on Sunday, the Daily News, and Dick Tracy was there, and he was in the Cleveland papers for a while. So I have been reading Dick Tracy on and off for more than 30 years, which is scary to think about. So the period you would have been reading the comic strip was when Max Allen Connellens was doing it. And I didn't realize that at the time. This is pre-internet day, so it was just the name on the masthead. But yeah, that was the period. It was like around 1979, 1980, when I first really became aware of Dick Tracy. Max Allen Collins is an interesting figure when it comes to comic book people because he had a run on one of the Batman books that is not well regarded <laughs> by a number of fans. I personally had better experiences with him. I really enjoyed not only Mystery when I'd pull that out of the cheapy bin, more of a noirish look. And then also they had Mike Mist One Minute Mysteries. He and Terry Beatty would do about a page or a two-page strip. You were given all the clues that you could figure it out. I always found those to be really interesting. A next level up from Encyclopedia Brown, I would say. Have you ever read right. any of Collins's comic book work? I've read his Batman stuff, and that's pretty much it. I've also read The uh, Road to Perdition, those graphic novels that he did. There are people who had issues with his Batman run, I think because it probably was a little bit more, I don't know what, what I want to say, old-fashioned, but I think he initially took some cues from the newspaper strips, things like Dick Tracy. As a Dick Tracy fan, did you enjoy those strips maybe more than some of the other folks had, or did you have your own reservations about that material? No, I think I probably liked them more than the average. That was the era when they were going into the Dark Knight Returns and Frank Miller's influence was taking over, and I liked the older style before the Dark Knight took over. I liked the Jim Aparo, Brave and the Bolds, and I liked the little influences from the TV show. I liked Batman to smile once in a while. He got too dark for me. Yeah, there were a couple of times on his Batman run where he had characters who were right, almost right out of the TV show or the comic strip. I'm in a sort of the same page with you. I enjoyed that material. I wasn't as critical of it. I also bought into the Dark Knight stuff. I liked Grim Dark Batman, but it wasn't the only Batman I saw as valid. I assume you've gone back to the Chester Gould material, too. Back in the 1980s or early 1990s, there was a company, I think, called Blackthorn that was reprinting the Dick Tracy strips, and now they're doing the whole run of the Chester Ghoul. I think it's at IDW. They're almost done. They've been doing volumes from the 30s up until when he finally retired in the end of 1977. And so the whole run is available in hardcover and great collections, and Collins does the intros in all the volumes, so he has a good history and understanding of the character. I think the one of the reasons why Collins got hired in the first place back in the 70s is to put Dick Tracy back 
back on the right path. In the 1960s, Chester Gould really went overboard with Moon Maid. Dick Tracy was flying around in a spaceship patrolling the moon and in outer space. A lot of the uh, editors, apparently, and the readers at the time thought, this is not Dick Tracy anymore. Then in the, as the 1970s went on, Chester Gould was in his 70s, and he became much more conservative, very much more law and order. He thought the society was being too permissive, and Dick Tracy was seeming like it was out of date. And so I think they brought in Collins as a younger writer to reinvigorate the strip and sort of bring it back to its roots. I believe Gould stayed on for a couple of years as a consultant, and then that faded away after a couple of years. Max Allen Collins was fired, I think, in 92, basically because the Tribune decided they were paying him too much? I think so. And I think that was probably a mistake. I think that the strip went downhill for a long time after that. And now it's still in publication, obviously, and I really enjoy it. They're hearkening back to a lot of the old stuff and bringing some of the old characters back, some of the old villains back. But there was a long slog there for the 1990s, early 2000s, when it was pretty painful to read, I thought. Well, it was just some guy who worked at the Tribune, wasn't it? He was like drawing it as well? There were a couple of different writers, and there was a guy named Dick Loker who was like an editorial cartoonist. He had been Chester Gould's assistant back in the 50s or 60s. They were okay, but it didn't have any punch or zing to it anymore. Air was coming out of the tires at that point, to me, it seemed like. Max Collins, when he took it over, was trying to very much modernize it. He got rid of a lot of the science fiction stuff that had crept into the strip beginning in the 60s. I don't know what happened during that period where the editorial guy was doing it, but my understanding is that Joe Staten and Mike Collins are doing it today, and to some degree it was a return to form both for the Max Allen Collins period and the Chet Gould material because they're a little bit more pulpy. Yeah. Dick Tracy since the beginning. 
And I was there on the opening preview night for the movie back in 1990. It was weird to me to find how many people were into it. Like, there's a YouTuber called The Angry Nerd, and he's known for these profane reviews of usually period games. In his coverage of the Dick Tracy video game, he shows himself that Halloween dressed as Dick Tracy. For me, in my experience, I was a huge comic fan, and I was a big Batman fan, especially 1989. Literally the only book I've ever read cover to cover in one sitting was the novelization of the Batman movie. Um, and then I went to see the movie and I was disappointed because it just didn't seem to be as big as the book and especially you never got to have the race of Batman swinging through the city chasing after the Joker in the movie I went to see the movie in 89 my parents dropped me off the first showing on a Saturday morning or Friday morning I think it was and then they came back afterwards and they're like we want to go ahead and see it you want to watch it again (laughs) and so this movie that I was kind of disappointed by I ended up getting to watch twice but I did get the Jerry Ordway adaptation as part of the the return deal and that was really nice and then the following year because Batman was so enormously huge it really seemed like it made people aware that there was a hunger for adaptations of four color properties but I don't think they quite understood necessarily which ones to do and since Dick Tracy was already in the pipeline it was already being filmed before Batman even came out it was natural to push that and there was a sense that this was going to be the next Batmania I, mean, I know you were already coming into it as a fan of the newspaper strip but did the surrounding hype around the next comic movie have any impact on your experience? I think so I remember and this is probably on YouTube somewhere but the TV news show 2020 did a big story on Batman in 89 and then Dick Tracy in 1990. And I'm just sitting here looking at, since I knew we were going to talk, I'm looking at a couple of magazines I saved from the era. Dick Tracy was on the cover of Entertainment Weekly a couple of times. Warren Beatty and Madonna were on the cover of People Magazine and Newsweek. Hollywood's high stakes summer, Madonna and Warren Beatty go for broke and Dick Tracy. So this was a huge movie at the time. It was everywhere. I remember Warren Beatty was on Donahue and he was really selling this thing. His relationship with Madonna was in the news at the time. I don't think, even back then, I never believed that Dick Tracy was going to be as popular as Batman. Just because even the kids I went to school and high school and college with, they didn't really know too much about Dick Tracy. So I can't believe that they thought this was going to be the next franchise. But for what it is, it's a fun comic strip movie. And I would encourage everybody to see it if they haven't seen it. But this was a big deal at the time. In the summer of 1990, this was one of the big tentpole movies. It came out at a good time for me because those weren't the best years of my life, but I was in a smallish town. We had cable. I was recording music videos on VHS at the time, and I've got (laughs) clips from the MTV promotion. You're going to have to kill me first, Flat Top. Gary, it's time we had a serious talk. You're going to have to kill me first, Flat Top. Get a grip, Gary. You're going to have to kill me first, Flat Top. It sounds like fun to me, pal. (laughs) You can't do this to me. I'm Dick Tracy. You know Dick Tracy. Say your prayers, my guy. Ed, you can't beat Dick Tracy by wishing it. You need MTV's help. MTV's Be Dick Tracy Contest. Call 1-900-786-2222 and you could win the chance to become America's number one crime fighter. Thanks for calling. You'll get Tracy's trademark code in Fedora and the famous wrist radio. Very upsetting. Pursue your quarry in Tracy's vintage sedan. And for off-duty, something a little flashier, this sleek boat tail speedster was seized from Breathless Mahoney. Your first case, the exclusive Dick Tracy premiere party at the Disney MGM Studios. The biggest names in Tinseltown will be there. Here's my invitation. Your job, infiltrate and recover the loot. 15,000 times. A fitting reward for the world's greatest detective, MTV's Be Dick Tracy Contest. Just call 1-900-786-2222 and take your shot. You're a good man, Tracy. 
Just doing my job. One badge, two cars, 15 grand. It could be yours, Dick. You mind if I call you Dick? MTV's promotion brought to you by M&M's. They had William Forsyth in full flat top makeup. It was such a weird thing that in retrospect that, yeah, this 1930s comic strip is going to be the next Batman for sure. But it worked great for me because I was going to a school that I liked. There's been the walking distance to the movie theater, to comics, to the mall, to the public library. Once again, randomly, my mother was like, hey, you want to go see Dick Tracy? And she went to the movie theater and she actually got me the t-shirt that they stamped the address of the movie theater on it. And that's yes. was your movie ticket to get into the theater. I had that shirt. I wore it a long, long time. Wore it to shreds. But I had, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had that too. Exact same experience for me. I wore that shirt until it fell apart. I probably wore it at least once every two weeks for like three or four years. <laughs> Uh, and it was well, a really you know nice what? shirt. I mean, it's just, it's the profile of Dick Tracy. And then you right. had the impression like of, of a torn movie ticket with the jagged edges and such. It was a That's pretty right. solid, iconic shirt. And so that, that was in rotation with the Brian Boland Joker shirt that I also wore for multiple years. I had that shirt too. <laughs> <laughs> And then going to see the movie that night, just like with Batman, it was a weird experience. It's on a Thursday night. It's the first showing, which might have been the first time I ever saw the actual premiere of a movie like that. Mm. And it was just so cool to be up late on a school night, too. And I I think it started at 10 and ran until about midnight. And the funny thing was they screwed up the order of the reels. So after seeing Dick Van Dyke get killed, then all of a sudden he's back again. We don't know what's going on. Finally, I think we all pieced together that something was amiss. And then we all got rain tracks. And I probably got to see Darkman a month later off the rain check off of Dick Tracy. Oh, hey, well, that's something. You mentioned Dick Van Dyke. The fact that Warren Beatty got all of his Hollywood friends to show up in these small roles, Justin Hoffman and Al Pacino and James Caan and Estelle Parsons, Charles Durning. I like old movies. It was fun to spot all these big stars in these small roles. Like Batman, I was primed for this one because the Walt Disney Company had put out comic books ahead of the release of the movie. And it was a weird situation because they weren't really doing comics at that time besides Walt Disney's comics and stories and like the first issue comes out and it's a square bound prestige edition 48 pages and like 395 which is a little pricey for me at that time period but i picked it up i liked it and then it felt like it was months before the second issue came out and then when that one comes out it's on a different paper stock it's side set stitched and it's two dollars more it's i believe it's 595 for that issue i think it ran about 64 pages and i don't know how i managed to scrape together the money for that that was a really expensive purchase in that time period for me but i bought that and i really enjoyed that too so i I was really set up to appreciate the movie. Did you pick up those comics when they were coming out? I did. I have them. I still have them. They were really good. Paul Baker was the artist, and I'm not sure who the who the writer was at the moment. The first two issues were backstory leading into the adaptation for the third issue, and I really enjoyed it. I read it again knowing that we were going to talk, and I was kind of surprised how dark and violent it was, much more gritty than I remember the movie being. I really liked it. The script is credited to John Moore, which is Moore, it, it, it's a tricky thing because there was a fellow working at Disney named John Moore. I always assumed it was John Francis Moore, particularly because he was a little bit more mature, a little bit dark for right. something from Walt Disney. I don't even think they called it Walt Disney. I think it was like the WD company or something. Oh, um, could be. It's a really sophisticated story. I think that's part of what resonated for me is I'd already read The Dark Knight Returns, Born Again, Year One. In rereading, the collection is titled True Hearts and Tommy Gunn's Trilogy. In rereading it, I'm struck by how much the story is indebted to both Brian De Palma's The Untouchable 
Expendables, which is a movie I loved when it came out. Oh. And year one, it totally is so in sync. It's almost like a spiritual relative or something. For people who haven't read him, it's how Breathless Mahoney comes to the big city as this innocent girl and is living on the streets and how Al Pacino's gangster big boy starts off as a toady stooge and works his way up to taking over the mob. And it's got all of these other villains who weren't in the movie or had very small parts of the movie and it expands them a little bit. So you see the mole and vitamin flint heart tops up there for a moment. It's a lot of fun. I'm glad I read it. I wouldn't have probably read it again if we weren't going to talk today, but I'm so glad we did. It's a prequel. And so again, it's very much like your one where you're dealing more with Carmine Falcone than you are with the Joker. Lips Manless is built up in these first two comics when he isn't a really a major presence in the movie. I mean, Paul Sorvino's great in the role, but he literally has two scenes in the movie where he's the big boss for the other two parts of this story. I really feel like people who saw the movie without having read the comics missed out a great deal. I think you're right. Lips Manless and some of these other characters, they were all very minor in the comic strip. Lips Manless was around in the 30s sometime, but he comes off as really gruff and screaming and really mean. In the movie, he's got two scenes and he's probably out of the movie within about the first 10, 15 minutes. He's already bumped off. I remember marveling at this comic. I didn't understand, I guess because I'd been raised on newsprint, on four-color process, I would look at the coloring in the book in particular. And Kyle Baker had this really great uh, gift for doing flesh tones and giving them yeah. like lighting highlights and layers coming off of them. I didn't understand how that worked at the time I bought the books. And so I didn't know if he was taking photographs and then drawing over the photographs or how he was doing it. Today I recognize it's probably just map colors, maybe some watercolors, but it prints so well and is so effective. The art is so expressive. Again, that's one of the reasons why I draw a lot of parallels to year one because it's deceptively simple in the line work. There's not a ton of detail, but it conveys so much character and so much mood. It's just absolutely glorious. And that echoes the film itself. There are only, I think, like six or seven colors used in the movie, so every red is the same red. Every yellow matches Dick Tracy's trench coat. It's a lot of depth and emotion out of these colors, and it's interesting, if you read the Dick Tracy strips from the 40s, the 50s, the 30s even, during the week, the black and whites, those are very much a film noir. Lots of heavy shadows and dark black panels. That's not in here at all, but you get the feel of that, that grittiness with these bright, almost neon-like colors. Now, I do feel like the book hits a wall with the third installment. It's yeah. a straight adaptation of the movie. It switches writers to Lynn Wein. The pacing just isn't quite the same because of the, the demands of de- adapting a movie. They had space for it, at least, because I think the individual comic was roughly equivalent to a three-issue miniseries that you'd get from Marvel or DC at the time. You feel like you've shifted a gear or you've lost a gear or something. It kind of jerks you around a little bit, it felt like. It's amazing. I was reading through this again, and I put on the Dick Tracy. It was on HBO or something, so I taped it the other day, and it's almost word for word exactly the same. I don't think there are any sequences in that third issue that aren't in the film. The only other thing I'd mention is I did a little, very little bit of research for this, and I guess one of the problems that they had when they were putting this three issues together was that Warren Beatty kept sending the drawings back. He wanted Dick Tracy to look more like him. I guess originally Kyle Baker wanted to have Dick Tracy with the sharp nose and the jaw from the comic strips, and Warren Beatty said no, and he kept asking that the counterpart in the comics look more like him. 
And Kyle Baker said he thought Beatty was a little vain as he was getting older. He was in his 50s at this point. So he wanted Dick Tracy to look a little bit younger than maybe he did in real life. I was trying to find the release schedule. It's amazing what you can get on the internet these days. And certainly one of the best places to go for that is Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Yes. But, you know, no one's omnipresent. And unfortunately, this is one area, there's a blind spot where this comic is not acknowledged at Mike's. So there's no way of telling. But my recollection, maybe you remember differently, that this book took forever to come out. I don't remember specifically, but I'm sure it came out before the movie. I do remember wanting to see what was going to happen. But that's 30 years ago, and I'm getting old, so I can't, I can't verify it. Baker even said that there was only one panel of the entire miniseries that Beatty was actually happy with how he looked. And (laughs) I have to say, if there's one major thing I can point to that I was unhappy about with the movie, revisiting it today too, so not just at the time, I really feel like Beatty is the wrong guy to be playing Dick Tracy. He's this empty void in the middle of the movie. Everybody else is more bombastic and so much more colorful and chewing the scenery, and he's not. But I think I remember seeing somewhere in an interview where he said that he directed the movie as well, is that Dick Tracy was maybe one of the more personal things that he ever did. The relationship that he has with Junior, the kid, this is all before Beatty married Annette Benning and had a bunch of kids. And so he does sort of seem like a cipher a little bit. All these other things are happening around him. He's the knight in shining armor. But I'm not sure who would have been a good choice at the time. I guess, if I'm not mistaken, I think Beatty still has the film rights to the character. I believe they've been like in court for years over this. Who would you, maybe Kevin Costner? I'm trying to think of who was big in 1990 who could fit the bill. Wikipedia is not the most reliable of sources of information, but I saw among the options, Mel Gibson was one. I believe that Harrison Ford was one. There were a number of people, and the truth is none of the people they thought about casting worked any better for me than Warren Beatty. But I, yeah. I, I want to say that I remember reading a period review of the movie that said that the coat was wearing Warren Beatty. You know, mm. that most of the acting <laughs> of the character was was played by the coat. You know, your attention is drawn to the villain. That's going to happen. But I understand exactly what you're saying, but I don't think if it was for Warren Beatty, there would be no Dick Tracy and, movie. And that's the funny no. thing. That's the catch-22. By the way, as a fan, did you have an actor in mind that you would have liked to have seen play that role that you think would have been great? Oh, not at the time, no. Maybe Kevin Costner, who was sort of an Elliot Ness kind of type, if he, if he could do that. But I'm not sure at this late date if I could think of anybody better. I was trying um, to think of somebody that wouldn't have to have a showy performance and just by their presence and their basic looks would be good. And the accent's yeah. completely wrong. I acknowledge this. But the one person that I keep coming back to is Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, yeah. Tommy Lee. Maybe, you know, now that I'm thinking, I'm, t- I'm trying to think of who was late 80s, early 90s. Tom Selleck could have done it. You know, maybe he jumped into my brain. I That's, don't know. Yeah, but you, you shave the mustache, unless you're doing 70s Dick Tracy. Yeah, I, <laughs> actually, I could see that. I could see it working because the mustache softens him. When he's lost the mustache, he has a little bit more of a severity to him. And yeah. I, I can see that working. He's got a great voice to it, too. I, I, guess, I think he could have a really commanding presence as Dick Tracy in that time period. Yeah, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Warren Beatty did play Dick Tracy one more time. They did a knockoff half-hour TV special so he could continue holding these rights. And they re-ran it a couple of years ago, so I know it exists, and I did see it, where I think Disney and Warren Beatty and whoever, they were fighting over these rights. And so that's floating out there somewhere. And it's absolutely, totally forgettable. But he did wear the overcoat and the hat one more time. It's clear he has a passion for the character and the material. I think he sees it as one of his iconic roles. You can find it on YouTube. And I think it was originally aired on American Movie Classics. Oh, Le- maybe, yeah. Learn Moulton is the host of it. But it's supposed to be a birthday celebration for Dick Tracy, even though it's yes. completely off year. I think it came out in 2005 or 06. It wasn't like there was any sort of anniversary to celebrate or anything. Jack Kirby is a guy who created so much for comic books 
contracts and the guy could never sign a decent deal. And it feels like Dick Tracy has the same problem because my understanding, I don't know if it was Gould or if it was the Tribune that did it, but they signed that deal for this movie serials back in the 1930s and 40s when Dick Tracy was the biggest piece of IP you could get right. a hold of. And the wording of the contract was such they managed to do multiple movie serials off of the original contract for no additional money. And then turn around in 1985 and Tribune basically does the same thing. They managed to sign away so many of their rights to Warren Beatty that they can't do TV shows, they can't do cartoons, they can't do movies without him being involved. And he only wants to do it if he's going to direct it himself. It was a court case in the early 2000s. And sure enough, he made that special because it would firmed up his rights that as long as he's continuing to satisfy the terms of the contract, that he continues to hold the rights. And it's so funny because in the 2000s, you get the feel of it is very, very late 80s, early 90s, very cheesy, yes. very cheap. The kind of bumper material they used to have when a movie would run short the last 15 minutes they'd run this little b-roll type stuff and it's just him talking about the character of dick tracy and hamming it up with some extras to make a little bit of a story out of it and boom it's 2020 and he's still got the rights and i should just mention one little piece of trivia for anybody out there listening i grew up in cleveland ohio a couple of years ago they had a little announcement that one of the professors at Case Western Reserve Law School, which is just down the street from where my parents live, was going to give a talk. And it turns out that it's Charlie Cosmo, hmm. who was the little kid. He grew up, he went to MIT, he went to Harvard, he worked for Obama, and now he's a law professor here in Cleveland. They did a screening of one of his movies called Men Don't Leave mm -hmm. with Jessica Lange, and he talked uh, about Dick Tracy, and uh, he signed one of my Dick Tracy books. So Charlie Cosmo is one of those kid stars who survived and thrived but he talked very fondly of the movie he talked about sitting next to madonna and al pacino at these parties and not knowing who the heck anybody was he didn't know who these stars were turned out to be a very nice appealing guy i read period reviews and i read stuff for contemporaries the guys who were seeing it back in 90 as kids and there's a lot of criticism directed at charlie cosmo and the kid character and my feeling is those are a bunch of robin killers i think those are all the yes. guys you call the hotline to kill off robin because i think cosmo is great in this he's a very charismatic and fun screen presence yeah and if anybody goes back you read the first 10 years of dick tracy like robin jr is introduced about a year later after the strip starts the origin is pretty close to what we see in the movie he's being raised on the streets by this fagin like steve the tramp and being abused and being a pickpocket you can see boy this is where the idea for robin came from everything that bruce wayne and dick grayson are doing in those early 40s comics are what tracy and jr were doing 10 years earlier it's almost one for one some of the same story beats are in there kid is going to be taken away and going to be sent to an orphanage so i love junior i'm junior is one of my favorite characters remind me his partners in the movie was it pat Patton and sam ketchum right in the comics pat Patton was the comic relief sidekick and Sam Ketchum, I don't think, was introduced until the 50s. They did a storyline where the police chief, I think in the 40s, there was some sort of scandal. He had to leave, and Pat is promoted, and Sam Ketchum has replaced him, for the most part, in the strips. Pat Patton is still there, but he's more of an authority figure than comic relief these days. More of a Commissioner Gordon, basically. That's exactly what he is now. Bring it up, because in the comic book, you get a lot more from both of those characters in the movie. They're, I think the actors do a nice job, but they're just barely have any presence in the movie the yeah. kid is so much more valuable than anybody on the police force in helping dick tracy to get stuff done oh yeah pat and sam don't really do much in the movie they're sidekicks man it's nice to see seymour casal have a nice role of you know he, he's in there he got a good payday they don't really add too much you could take them out it wouldn't change the story i don't think at all we were talking a little bit about Beatty and the rights and it is a weird sort of catch-22 because rob k 
Kelly, who you've podcasted with on Treasury Cast, did a Treasury Cast prior to that talking about DC's release of a Dick Tracy Treasury Edition. Yes. And the way he was talking is like, even by the 70s, it felt like maybe Dick Tracy was a bit of an afterthought, of anachronistic figure. So I can't imagine what he was relative to fandom by the 90s, right? I don't think there was much Dick Tracy fandom in the 90s among young people. Um, I was in college at the time, and I don't I don't think anybody knew or followed Dick Tracy that I went to school with. And so it seems like Warren Beatty's passion for this project absolutely wielded and manifesting. I, I think back to how, for years, they talked about how Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to do a Sergeant Rock movie, right. or Steven Spielberg was going to do a Black Hawk movie. Robert Altman's Popeye was a movie I saw as a kid. I've got friends who have an affection for it. I tried to rewatch it earlier this year, and I was just like, what were they thinking when they made this? It's visually very appealing but i don't understand who this movie is going to be for in 1979 1980 thereabouts and that's right it seems to me like you look at a dick tracy without maybe just like not letting this go and working on this thing for years and years and then finally getting it together and then of course it probably partially fueled by the success of batman then getting it to push at the way that it did i really feel like born Beatty, as much as he might have harmed dick tracy by being so covetous of those rights i don't think that anybody else could have done what he did with the property to actually give it that last hurrah it might still power it into a revival down the line because at least there's middle-aged guys who, if they're introduced to Dick Tracy through the movie, at least, you know, we're still out there who were like, oh yes. yeah, Dick Tracy, I, that's actually something I could support. They wanted to do something more with it. And I'm not sure the culture wouldn't have left it behind without at least that one shining moment in 1990. You know, you mentioned Popeye. It's interesting. In the early 90s with Dick Tracy, you had the Phantom and you had the Shadow with Alec Baldwin. I don't know who was clamoring to see these movies. I'm glad they made them. I went to see them all at the time. But but these were all things set in the 30s and 40s. And for a kid growing up in the 1990s, that was ancient history. It's a very strange time period for movies where they were bringing back comic characters, but it wasn't the superheroes. It wasn't Batman. It wasn't Superman. It wasn't Spider-Man again. It was Dick Tracy and the Shadow of all people. And I think a lot of it was that they were cheaper licenses. People who were in power in Hollywood at the time didn't know the difference between a pulp character, a comic strip character, and a comic book character. Because it was back in the days before any fans had any business in the movies. But also, it's very possible, I think, that some of the older guard may have been fans of that material and not realized how out of step they were with the modern taste. I'm sure Warren Beatty must have read Dick Tracy. So he was in his 50s back then. He was reading comics in the 40s and early 50s. Dick Tracy was right up his alley. He wasn't reading Batman, I don't think. I'm glad he made it. I like it. I show clips of it uh, occasionally in my comics studies class, and they seem to enjoy it. I want to say it was Vulture, but recently one of the big online legacy magazines turned blog deals they did a list of i think 50 movies that you have to see and it's not about the quality of the movies it's about the unique cinematic experience that basically mm. these were movies that do things that nobody else ever did dick tracy was on that list and i have to agree because no movie looks anything like dick tracy it is a, such a singular cinematic experience it's one of those movies i would put on even for a kid today and you can get into it for an hour and a half and it won a couple of oscars it won best makeup it won best song for stephen sondheim it won best art direction it's a beautiful movie to look at even with the sound off it's a beautiful movie to watch i read an article earlier where they were talking about how it's sort of a stealth musical you've got madonna as a co-leader i think that this is probably one of if not her best movie appearances i think like 
her best acting work and the I fact so. that she she had to train her vocals to be able to perform that Sondheim material I think the music in this movie is sumptuous it's exciting there was a pretty excellent soundtrack that came out of this and Madonna had a solid album out of uh, I'm Breathless Vogue came off of that album although thankfully it wasn't featured in the movie yeah. this has some really good music in it there is some repetition you hear a lot of the same songs repeatedly make sure to get a little mileage out of it but the movie really does have a lot of music throughout that score and the tone too where it actually plays a little like a musical it really is a unique experience especially when you talk about comic book and superhero type material there's nothing else like this because of that sound because of that production quality because it has that kind of old hollywood veneer to it that varnish to it I think you can't underestimate for people who weren't around in the early 90s just how big Madonna was one of the biggest stars in the world at the time. Now, she's still out there, but she was just at her peak in the late 80s and early 90s. And just having her in that movie brought a whole crowd of people who probably had no interest in Dick Tracy, guys and girls. And I think she does a pretty good job. Oh, and I should also mention, if anybody's out there listening right at the moment, Breathless Mahoney is back. They sort of resurrected her in the comic strip. So after all these years, they're doing a kind of a quasi-sequel with Breathless after uh, 30 years. (laughs) I don't want to Spoiler for people who haven't seen the movie, although, again, I, I don't imagine anybody would be listening to this if they hadn't seen the movie. But the, the blank in the comic strip had nothing to do with Breath, Breathless Mahoney. They were completely separate entities that the movie brought together as a twist. And you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because the way the strip was structured is Tracy would confront and battle a villain and then move on to the next one. More likely than not, the villains were killed off. And so you never had storylines where Flat Top met Prune Face who met the mole or some of these other characters. Pruneface and the Brow, for example, were Nazis in the 1940s. And I think one of the things that harmed Tracy in the long run is that Gould would kill off his most popular characters. Flattop has one storyline. They kill him off at the end, and it would be like killing off the Joker and just moving on. <laughs> so, you know, I think they learned in the comic books that the Joker can appear to be dead, but don't worry, he'll be back. <laughs> you don't go, okay, well, now we're going to do the extended magpie arc and never return to the Riddler ever again, you know? It's <laughs> not the commercial play, at the very least. I mean, I think there's some artistic merit to that. It definitely plays into the rigid moral clarity of the strip where you've got good and evil and there really isn't much in between. So if you're a, a bad guy, especially somebody as bad as Flattop was, this hired killer, you're going to meet an end and it's going to be definitive and Dick Tracy's going to be the guy who doles it out. And I think that's where a lot of the appeal of Dick Tracy comes from is that he's just this force for good. He's going to stamp out evil. That's right. And the thing that's most surprising to me, looking at some of these strips again, is just how violent they were. Especially in the 1930s and 40s, it's like a pulp story in in your newspaper. My favorite Dick Tracy death scene is the Brow, who is this Nazi spy, saboteur. Tracy is chasing him over a cliff on a hillside, and the villain trips, and he impales himself on a flagpole with the American flag sticking out of his chest. They couldn't get away with that today. Gould was pretty gory for his time. The comic strip, I don't think, ran in Houston. If it Mm -hmm. did, it didn't run in the paper I was reading, or I didn't get it routinely. For the most part, my greatest extended exposure, I think after the Batman movie... Comic Shop News, which was this weekly newspaper, yes, would I think it ran Batman. I think probably the rights got to be a little pricey for them, so they switched to Dick Tracy, which was fortuitous timing. I'm sure they needed that market penetration. That's probably the only time I really read the strip, which was very small amount of exposure. But I was constantly reading about the strip. In particular, Jules Pfeiffer did the great comic book Heroes, and mm-hmm. I think there's a big chunk of that book that talks about Dick Tracy and the influence of it. It's a shame that it's been forgotten by the masses. 
But I always tell my students in one of my comic book classes is that we are living in the golden age of reprints. Mm. So, you know, you can go on Amazon or a local bookstore and they have complete runs of the original Popeye and Prince Valiant and Dick Tracy and Little Orphan Annie. And so we are living in a great era. I remember it would be hard to find copies of stories from Dick Tracy. You could find old beat up copies of these reprints that they did in the 50s and 60s, but those were pricey. I would urge anyone out there listening, if you just want to give Dick Tracy a, a shot, pick out any one of those hardcover editions from the 30s and 40s, and you'll be sucked in. One thing that's weird with Dick Tracy, too, is that reading the Jules Pfeiffer book, he talked about how everybody wanted to draw like Alex Raymond or like Hal Foster. It didn't seem like anybody wanted to draw like Chet Gould. <laughs> And I think that I don't know if it was there or it was another source that talked about the kind of crudeness of the art style. But for me personally, I actually find that absorbing. There's something about the clarity of the strip. I love the primary colors and the flats, everything else. It's so straightforward. And it really, I think it, it's one of those kind of things that maybe an adult would appreciate all the, the more fine crafting of some of the other artists. But I liked how clean and clear and bold Dick Tracy was. And I still, to this day, as even as an adult, I find that more appealing. I find that immediacy. You're not intended to just stare at a panel you're intended to go to the next panel get to the next panel as quickly as possible tell that story give you the violence give you your heroes versus your villains you know it's exciting i've got a book here about the great comic strip artists and i was reading the entry on chester gould and it said of all the artists in this book of great comics artists he's probably the worst you know that like you said <laughs> the uh, the artwork is kind of crude and sometimes the the arms and the legs don't seem to be attached right to the bodies but it somehow it works he's got a good mix of the surreal the bizarre looking villains but then he was very realistic in terms of the guns and the technology and the the cars and things so it's it's a strange mix of very realistic and very surrealistic art somehow it works the dick tracy show Tracy, given what a huge influence he had on comic books, has had a patchy history in the comics themselves. I think probably in part because he was so insanely popular in the 30s through the 50s that the rights were probably not the cheapest thing to go. But also, it seemed like going into the 60s, maybe there was a loss of relevancy, maybe there was too many eyes on televisions, maybe it was all that sci-fi stuff. It felt like maybe they were chasing after an audience they were losing to other media. But you have a lot of comic books that reprinted the newspaper strip. You have a long period, I think around the 50s or early 60s until the 80s where there's really not much of anything that you can get reprint wise you can get books but you really can't get comics then Blackthorn which is a company most people forgot ever existed it was always very a niche but they were yes. so they're successful enough they actually put out a weekly Dick Tracy comic book for something like 100 issues something crazy like that just a few years before the movie came out and of course Walt Disney does their comic and then after that there's just nothing in comics and I, I don't know if there's some kind of weird rights issue since Disney put up this comic book themselves the True Hearts and Tommy Guns but you can't get this if you you don't have the original material if you didn't buy the the individual floppies or you didn't get the even lower print run trade paperback in 1990 that's it there's no digital version available there's no reprints good luck have that now i think that there was probably a lot of them circulating because these books did get newsstand distribution but yes you know i don't know how many of them got pulped down the line i'm really curious to know how successful this was the comic book but it doesn't really indicate that it was terribly successful given that we went decades with nothing if it had been any kind of a hit somebody would have Disney would have come up with something. 
in 30 years. God knows Disney or whoever has the rights knows how to make money off of comics characters. I'm hoping that somebody, before I die, I don't hope it's not another 30 years before we see another Dick Tracy movie or a TV show or a cartoon. I'll take anything at this point <laughs> or comic book. There was some kind of weird catch in the contract that I believe Tribune is the rights holder still for printed media like comic books. They did do some novels related to the movie. Yes. I think maybe it's something specific to comic books or the comic strip. And apparently there was one point where the fight with Warren Beatty prevented a book coming out by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Avon Oming, I believe in the early 2000s. They were going to do a comic book at Archie. They even had solicitations, I think, or they at least they made it onto the news sites that it was coming. And then they were swiftly retracted because there was a rights hang up. Yeah, that looks good. I, w- I was so excited. And then I Oh, I finally, and then it's gone. There have been a couple of miniseries the last year or two. They're okay. Because of some kind of wording, again, these weird contracts, with the contract with IDW, because IDW had had the license for so long to print the collections, they got the rights to do original material, too. And, oh. they, and they, yeah, that's how they ended up happening, because they apparently the tribute didn't read their contract well. And IDW was like, no, guys, we've been waiting seven, I think it was something crazy, like seven years or 14 years of having the license. They would activate the opportunity to do original material. Or maybe they just oh. uh, heard somebody else was going to do material and they did a reversion or something but then IDW started putting out original material in miniseries format I read them both and they're both fun the one I reread today knowing we were going to talk was this Dick Tracy Dead or Alive by Michael Allred they do the same thing that they did in the movie they shoehorn in all of these villains and all from these different eras and all of these characters you don't know who really anybody is the good guys and the bad guys the creators want let's put in as many things that we can in the book as we you know, we might not get another shot at Dick Tracy. So I wish that they had 12 issues to breathe a little bit and give the characters a lot of room. So they introduced Junior, but he's in there for a couple of panels and he comes and goes and there's no real connection between him and Dick Tracy and these three, four, five issues, whatever it is. It's a weird little thing. You know, you're reading comics for decades and you start putting together theories. And one of my pet peeves is I think there are a lot of characters that have been damaged by being in team book. One creative team gets into a habit of writing a character a certain way in the team book and that just becomes who that character is for the majority of fandom because they don't go back and read the solo material or read the older material. They just yeah. become the character as they exist in a team book or in an event series or something. And I do feel like most of the Dick Tracy comic creators, at least of course these two miniseries, they're not fans of the comic strip they're fans of the movie and they're adapting right. the movie they're trying to do the entire you know universe of dick tracy in the three or four issue miniseries another thing that's frustrating about dead or alive is you said it's by the all reds but it's a little tricky the headlining writer is lee or all red brother of michael uh, oh that's right the penciler is rich tomaso who i like he has kind of a richard sala quality to his artwork but when you get a mike all red cover and you hear that it's a mike all red project that's right and then you get rich tomaso illustrations they're not the same thing no no, they're not. And I'm glad you mentioned that. You mentioned Chet Gold's politics drifting further right in the 70s. Reading this, you know, again, I'm not a person who's followed the comic strip too much. There's a certain quality of sadism in the interpretation I find in the Dead or Alive miniseries where he feels more like Dirty Harry or one of those yeah. 1970s reactionary figures. There's a sequence in there somewhere in one of the issues where Dick Tracy goes undercover in a dive bar. He's got a must. Dick Tracy never did that. He was always a cop. He was 
was never this undercover detective. And it's fun to read, but it's not the Dick Tracy that I, you know, I'm not a writer, but it's not the Dick Tracy that I would have gone for. But I liked it. I'm glad that somebody out there said, well, let's give it a shot. And maybe, or hopefully it's sold enough that they can try these periodically down the line. It seems like they're doing a lot of radical reinventions of characters that you're not familiar with in the first place. So I don't know that it resonates as me with a person that's, you know, only got a passing familiar with any of these characters. They feel off. Yes. Some of these villains pop up for a page or two, then they're gone and you don't really, you know that it's got to be somebody, but you're not sure who. The character who pops up that's most blatant to me, a blind young scientist named Brilliant. And in the comic strip, he's Diet Smith's son who was murdered in that first storyline that he appeared. And here there's no backstory on him at all. When they made this book, they decided we're going to include this character, give him a new origin, that's fine. But they kind of throw him against the wall and, you know, I'm not sure if anybody other than myself and a few other hardcore people get who some of these references are, what these allusions are toward. The last page of the miniseries seems to set up a new status quo for continuing stories and then not terribly long after the first miniseries, an entirely new reinvention of the character comes out. Well, I guess that's not going to happen. I don't have that one right in front of me, but that took place over hundreds of years. Was was Dick Tracy forever? Was that the title of it? And yes. Dick Tracy was in sort of like in science fiction land for a while there. I wonder how this would have played buying it as individual issues because it does start out in the 1930s and even though we didn't get Bendis we'd get Michael Avon Oming who I think captures the character for me I, I think yes. that if you're going to do an update of Dick Tracy and still have it have a little bit of an indie sheen to it and everything he's a really good choice I try to compare the comic strip Dick Tracy to Oming's and I can definitely see that he's a little bit more stylish he's got a little bit more of a physique to him that's more modern you yes. know like more bulky but he still feels like the same guy yeah the thing that I like that he did is I think a lot of creators want to put Dick Tracy back in the 40s. And that's all well and good. But I think to keep these characters relevant, you have to keep them current. You can't have Batman be in the 1950s or even now the 1980s. I know a lot of people who love Shazam or Captain Marvel and want him to be that 1940s character. But that doesn't relate to kids or readers today. You have to keep these characters going. Dick Tracy was of the moment all the way through in the comics. He was living in the 50s, living in the 60s or the 30s. And I think you have to keep it going forward. You can't have him trapped in that 1940s gangster land forever. Just update. But one thing I do find neat is that he makes a point of doing a number of retro moves, like a crossword puzzle built into a city skyline. You've got one of the mazes that uh, winds its way through Tracy and one of his villains. The first issues tell some very short stories. Some of them are as short as like a couple of pages, it seems like. Some of them are more like eight to ten pages. Initially, it seems like these are just some nice little short pieces, but you've realized as the miniseries progresses that it's building to something. He does a pretty good job of introducing you to these individual characters in, in the context of these short stories so that it works better as a whole. I feel like I'm getting so much more story because I have these little chapters that build up rather than the, having to try to take on the full miniseries as, as was the case with Dead of Alive where you knew you were just getting one complete story over the course of the entire trade. It's been a little while since I read it, but you can tell how much these creators love Dick Tracy. Just mm-hmm. like you were talking about the artwork, they know this and they love it. You can tell that they're just so happy they've finally gotten a chance to do it. I'm glad that they did. One of the things I liked about the 1990 movie is after seeing Batman 89 
and having Vicky Vale just scream for an entire movie. Uh, <laughs> but aside from being a looker who screams, doesn't really contribute a lot. And then, of course, not only is Breathless Mahoney a key element of the movie, but also Tess Trueheart. Yes. It's, it's funny to me because apparently Sean Young, I think a lot of guys fell in love with her because of Blade Runner. This was a decade after Blade Runner. I can't imagine her being in Dick Tracy because Glenn Hetty is such a specific actress. She's so warm. She's so loving. But she's also got that sass to her. I f- immediately fell in love with her from Dick Tracy. I've always, I've, I've loved her ever since then. That and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I just adore her. I couldn't care less about Vicki Vale for the entire running time of Batman. <laughs> I could have watched a Tess Trueheart movie as long as she was playing the character. I love her. Her sweetness with the kid, but she would also, a bit of a tomboy, you know, they make sure to show that she's not just another dame, which is part of how she wins the kid over. Just such a great character. And then you get to Dick Tracy forever. And once again, it's not enough for Tess to be the wife that's waiting at home that my understanding is eventually got phased out of the comic strip to a large degree not really there it seems like anymore but here's like I'm on the force with you I'm sort of a partner to you I'm not sure if that works for a comic strip fan but it definitely gives the book an estrogen injection they've had a hard time if you read over the decades of what to do with Tess they finally got married in the late 1940s and then they started having kids I think Tess and Tracy have two or three kids now in the comics and you could read the comics for months if not like a year goes by and she never appears and now in the and they were going to have them divorce i think back in the 90s or early 2000s and now in the comic strip tess has her own detective agency sort of a private investigator so that works so she's on the floor she's working with him occasionally but i think glenn headley is the movie version is my favorite version of tess true she's spunky and she really grounds it you can see how she could love this kid and love tracy it's the opposite of the Skylar white effect you know that's an instance where you're so behind heisenberg even though she's the voice of reason you resent her because you want to see Heisenberg kill drug dealers. In the case of the Dick Tracy movie, I love Tess Trubart so much that I'm resenting Dick Tracy for going out and doing all this cop stuff. It's like, dude, you've already put enough people away. You need to spend some time with this million dollar lady. You're going to lose something really special here. There's always going to be another big boy, but you're not going to get another Tess Trueheart. Wake up, Tracy. <laughs> Well, good thing she's understanding. You know, even at the end, at the end of the movie, he proposes to her, but he just kind of throws her the ring, and then he and Junior are off on another adventure. You sort of, okay, you know, she accepts it, so we'll accept it. He nearly gets her gunned down after a date. He gets her apartment <laughs> building blown up. Personally, I wouldn't have put up with him. You know, I'm, I'm, a, no. I'm 100% Team Tess here. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, Warren Beatty, he went through a lot of ladies. So Yeah, because you were talking about Madonna. Wow, they sexed her up in that movie. I didn't oh, appreciate yeah. it until I was rewatching it. They definitely were making sure she was going to be on somebody's bedroom wall at some point. But I'm also remembering the weird cross-promotion is you had the Madonna documentary come out around that same time, Truth or Dare. Warren Beatty clearly wasn't on board, but I'm pretty sure he had a whole new audience showing up in a Madonna documentary that would have not known who the heck Warren Beatty was without that connection. Oh, definitely. I want how much they were really involved i don't i don't know if it was more of a business proposition or anything but it helped both their careers she got into the movies and he was relevant to a younger audience again she already had roles i think it gave her an avenue into the academy i think it gave her an yes. avenue into one of these days i'm going to get to be a vita because i play in breathless mahoney now yeah. i think it gave her legitimacy she could be the biggest star in the world but until she could wow people at the oscars and uh, win an academy award for best song with sondheim that's when all of a sudden she was working at a different level with a a whole different audience. She holds up her own. She's right up there against Al Pacino and he's going over the top, but she's not a shrinking violet. She does a pretty good job for one of her, if not her very first film, one of her very, well, wasn't her first, but one of her early films, one of the big ones. Well, certainly the most, if not the most successful, certainly up there. 
Yeah. Now, okay, here's another one I have a little bit of trouble with, though. Al Pacino as a big boy. <laughs> I, I think it grates. I think so, too. He sort of started doing that in the 1990s, where he was just sort of shouting at the top of his lungs. If I'm not mistaken, he was nominated for an Oscar for this. He didn't win, but he, he hadn't been doing too many movies in the 1980s. So this was kind of a comeback for him a little bit. Yeah, I, this was after Sea of Love, right? Or was it before? I think so. Just yeah. maybe just after. Yeah, so that was his big comeback roll after a hiatus and then he capitalized on that and i guess it kind of starting here is when he started the the whole hua as acting yes uh, <laughs> whereas for me when i rewatch the movies i'm much more taken with mandy patinkin as 88 keys although i'm a devout mandy patinkin fan and i love dustin hoffman as mumbles yes like the mini godfather reunion. you know james khan only did that one scene so he could play a gangster opposite pacino again i mean he doesn't do anything he just sort of sits there and then gets blown up mm -hmm. but you could tell that they relished having that chance to team up one last time and that was rough too because you've got the whole warren Beatty's, or i guess it was double shipping off the building and then jiving onto the <laughs> speeding car where you just sort of belly flops onto it yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, no, tom cruise he ain't uh <laughs> No, no. Again, one of those scenes where all these people are wearing latex or heavy makeup. They're all in just these super crazy, bold, colorful outfits. Cannot make movies like that anymore. And without Warren Beatty's connections, there's no way you could have gotten that much talent in one room. That was his Rolodex. For example, Estelle Parsons plays Tess's mother in one scene. But she had won an Oscar for Bonnie and Clyde. So, you know, she turned up for a day, day and a half. And so he called in all these favors, and I'm glad he did. For an old movie fan, it's fun to see all these people doing a little kind of a bat villain kind of turn. As much as they try to push these cinematic universes, you could never do that even with a Batman movie. You could never get that caliber of star for those small of a parts, you know? No. Uh, but it's so cool to see them all on the screen at the same time. Oh, yeah. I, I, we don't see those all-star movies anymore. Maybe Avengers, but, you know, those are a different level of star for me anyway <laughs> even some of those, the lesser lo known characters like a henry silva he's so heavy makeup you cannot recognize him but he has that henry silvaness about him that right. really comes across or james tolkien's in this thing that they're able to convey who they are so well under just absolute tons of makeup well you know and, and there was a rumor at the time and i'm sure it was just one of those things to get in the news but supposedly warren Beatty had offered ronald reagan the role of prune face <laughs> and, yeah honest I'm, I'm not making this up i remember reading this and like uh, reagan's out of the white house maybe he wants to and he, he he apparently declined if they ever offered it to him but there was this buzz at the time all these stars in these uh small villain cameos i think it's a beautifully shot movie i think that mm -hmm. as a sequence of images it looks fantastic i'm not sure about the direction because it almost feels like it's better as a bunch of stills when things are yes. moving it, it has the problem but it looks so good it's uh, it's so beautiful the color palette and the matte painting the boldness of having a shot it looks like you're within a foot of madonna's face in full profile and the action is taking place just the side of her face right. out the car window off in a graveyard or the opening sequence where they're just showing the iconic tools the radio the two-way wrist watch the hat it has such great shots for a movie that doesn't have the kinetic energy that you would need for a flick like this no it's almost like an old 1930s gangster movie some of those shots some of those scenes with the villains and when pacino's with the dancing girls that's like a 1930s backstage 
musical kind of Jimmy Cagney movie. It's a beautiful thing to look at, but it's not the best directed movie of all time. But it's definitely beautiful. It, it earned its Oscar for the uh, production design. And, you know, it's funny because people kind of slagged on the movie some. It did reasonably well, though. It made its money. It made its money back. It just didn't do Batman money. I think it's one of those weird, they, people think of it almost like it was a flop. And it's like, no, this thing, you know, it, it costs a lot, but it made a lot. It just didn't do crazy Batman money that's what they expected that was the benchmark again it just goes to show how out of touch they were to expect Batman movie from a property like Dick Tracy and I don't think anything could rival Batman back then if Batman was a 10 on the Richter scale of public knowledge Dick Tracy was probably a 2 and I know I've said this before but I'm sure I'm the only person in my class uh, at high school or college who had any interest at all in Dick Tracy. I'm sure some of them went to see it, but... They were there for Madonna. Yeah, they went there for Madonna, or they went there for the fun of a two-hour movie, but it wasn't an event. It wasn't an event like Batman was going to be. There was no way that they were going to make the Nicholson-Keaton money. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was just no way. I've taken some shots at Dick Tracy. I still enjoy watching Dick Tracy more than the first Batman. I do think, if nothing else, you can just stare at it. It's beautiful. I watched the first Batman again. I know I loved it when it came out. I saw it multiple times. But if you look at it now, it does seem very dated. It's very slow. It's very stiff. It's as dated as, you know, the old TV show is to some people. It's very much of its era. But I guess that's just time. All these Marvel movies that are out there now, come back in 30 years and we'll see how people are looking at them. Oh, my God, that seems so out of date. But it is frustrating to me, too, because, uh, and I know plenty of people have commented on this, as much as I love the Marvel shared universe, the cinematic universe, because of the limitations of that, because they all have to fit in one space, they have to be so muted, they all have to be so grounded in a realistic setting and stuff. I mean, with the exception of like a Ragnarok or something where they get to go off and be a little bit crazy. I miss comic book movies that could be as bold as Dick Tracy was. They could make the choices that it makes to be such a, a unique vision. No movie looks like this. I feel like comic book movies should shoot for this more often. Uh, you know, I'm not one of the, the guys who worships the altar of Zack Snyder, but I do have to give him credit. At least he has a different visual language in his movies than anybody else has. I miss comic book movies that are this bold. It feels like a lot of the comic book adaptations and in recent years are erring on the side of being Marvel movie. Like if, I, if I'm a per- member of the general public, I guess if I'm watching something with superheroes, I know that it's probably based on a comic book, but there's tons of Netflix shows right now that are based on comics. There's no reason that you would know that. That's definitely true. And I think you're right about the Marvel movies. I love them just as much as everybody else. But to me, they seem like big budget TV episodes. Mm-hmm. The directors, for the most part, don't shine. They're not individual. They're just the next installment. And that's great. But they do have a sameness after, what, 20 movies. So hopefully they'll change in the future a little bit. They're very visually anonymous. Yes. So getting back to Dick Tracy Forever, they show so many visions of Dick Tracy across multiple decades, jump 20, 30 years at a time. That It ends on a, on a sci-fi note. And yet it also has a little coda that takes you back into something that's uh, much more grounded in reality. It seems like Tracy, probably by design, was trying to show a way forward with the character of Dick Tracy. I was stressed out by Dead or Alive ending on what was seeming to be a new direction. And it not only does it not pursue that, but I don't particularly want to see that direction with forever there's multiple options you could take up to do a modern version of dick tracy for new audiences what i wonder is do you see a path forward for dick tracy as a property and if so how far afield do you think they could go comfortably for you to still feel like it's recognizable and for you to be a fan of that 
particular vision of the character. What I would do is kind of like what they would do with Darwin Cook did with the spirit, maybe about 10, 12 years ago, where you just do it setting in today. That only lasted for about a year or so, but make Dick Tracy a detective, bring in the villains, don't throw everybody into the first issue, and develop it. Anything you can do with Batman, you can do with Dick Tracy. That's what I would say. You know, I think you just need to give it some time. Dynamite and some of these other companies have brought back Tarzan and the Shadow and some of these other characters for limited runs. I think Dick Tracy could be in the mix of that. I'm not running any of these companies, so nobody's listening to me, but I sure hope that somebody gives them another shot. Been over a year since the debut episode of Amazing Heroes, and I can't tell you whether or not this is going to be an annual thing or not, but I did want to make a point of acknowledging the folks that responded to our first episode. Uh, that would include 20th Century Geek Podcast, The 108th Sage, Anime Freaks, Anime Nostalgia, Dr. Ange, Anthony Joseph, Badit Shapirak, Between the Pages, Biko Django, Bob Buster, Bone Dragon Comics, Brian Mulvey, Caroline Wells, Cash Flag, Charlton Hero, who noted, Looks Great Guys, Cerebus Film, Chris at Bad Books for Beginners, The Cinnabud Podcast, Class 1000, a Marvel Superheroes Live RPG, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Comics in the Golden Age, Errol Romero, Romero, Derek William Crabb of Fanholes Podcast and History of Comics on Film, Dreamer Comics Podcast, Dirk Ashton, who said, Thanks RSP, Gary at Chipper Rules, Quatom Shaoran, Gregory Litchfield, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, Paul Hicks, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Jeffy Brown, who wrote, Honestly, after listening to you, Frank, talk about the history of Aenea, they had so much beef with Milestone. I find that interesting. I have never read these books. It's nice to learn the history of a black independent comics company. Continuing on, we've got Jim at Canada Daredevil, Keechee Baker, King Dinosaur, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Luke Giaconetti of Earth Destruction Directive, MC Comics, Odell Abner Dracula, who wrote, I remember seeing that promo image someplace, in Wizard, on a postcard maybe, but this was all new to me. The media coverage was a great addition. Good job navigating some potentially perilous seas. Moving along, Noel Deal, Professor Frenzy, who added thanks, Randy Caldwell, Resurrections, a Warlock and Thanos podcast, Richard Field, Richard G, who added, always a pleasure to be included with these folks, Rob Lowe, who added thanks, Ryan Daly, Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, Sean McLaughlin, who added, really like this one and you know I hate everything, Siskoid, Steve Sellers, Varangian Vigilante, The Wicked Righteous Comic, Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace podcast, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zach Sally. I'd work you over for 50 cents, Charlie. You're just lucky I don't have any hardware with me. Darn lucky, I tell you. It was gambling that brought the rising star of mobs, the big boy Caprice to Zenith, and brought crime buster Dick Tracy onto his scent. Caprice had made his bones in the small-time extortion and protection rackets on the south side, and had prosecuted his vendettas with a ruthless tenacity that earned him a reputation for cunning, murderous unpredictability, and an unwillingness to forgive that was remarkable even on that seamy side of town. Business owners who failed to cop up big boys' exorbitant demands for tribute were hastily extinguished. And many a small-time operator learned the hard way with the mob. Not Webster, meant by territory, a school lesson that ended with a student dressed in a pair of cement overshoes. Dick Tracy, look out, crooks, you better break out. Plus, Tracy 
she's chilling on a stakeout. He's in town and he's hunting big boy Caprice. Tracy's on the CASC. It's no win if you think about doing crime. Tracy, have you doing time? Word. When he's dealing with hoods like flat top, he rolls solo. He doesn't need a backup cop. He just talks in the radio that's on his wrist. Pat Patton will hook him up quick. He makes his move and suckers is in his way. Well, pay. Dick Tracy don't Tracy, the Crime Stopper game is only at McDonald's. Now I'm on the lookout for prune face. Yeah, a face only a winner could love. Calling all kids. Calling all kids. The gangsters and other characters from the Dick Tracy movie are on the loose. And you can catch them on these Cabin Crunch Dick Tracy door hangers. One of four different door hangers in each specially marked box of Cabin Crunch cereals.